The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Good morning, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker of In Tune with Ellie Wharton. Hey, folks, we're glad that you tuned in today. We have a very interesting show. First, In Tune's a two-hour weekly broadcast which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community and the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. Today, we have a very important topic. We have in studio Serena Muhammad and Jessica Myers from St. Louis MHB, which is a, an abbreviation for Mental Health Board, and that's a that's really the new name, correct, ladies? Yes. And so, just to give you a little bit of information about that, because we're going to talk to them about that, but uh, they improve the quality of life for city residents. They invest and participate in a important words here coordinated system of social, behavioral, and physical health services aligned with important two words community priorities. There's nothing like not having a coordinated system aligned with nothing that's a priority which is what th- one thing that many governmental and institutions do. I was going to say that it sounded a little political to me when you, yeah. <laughs> when you said that, but no, we don't talk about politics no, on this no, show. No, no, no. So established in 1994, they're an independent government taxing authority, and they administer two property taxes, and I was not aware of this. Really? I so wasn't either. The Community Mental Health Fund and the Community Children's Service Fund. Oh, I do remember seeing that on my tax. Now I know. Okay. I, you know, it was like, okay, I'm paying for this. What is it? So one was a <laughs> an, initiative, an initiative that was approved in 2004, the Community Children's Service Fund, and the other one was approved in 1994, the Community Mental Health Fund. So ladies, welcome to In Tune today. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Uh, why don't, uh, Serena, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, give us some background, and then we're going to delve into this topic in detail. Sure. So I've been the director of strategic initiatives at the mental health for for about six years. Uh, Before that, I was the executive director of a youth development organization called America Score St. Louis. And we focused on soccer, poetry and service learning, which meant that I got to work with children and families um, on a lot of different issues. And especially in the service learning space, got to understand some of the priorities that were happening in community and as well as in those schools. And I think from that experience, as well as other experiences doing community organizing or working in education, um, I really started to think about some of the bigger picture systemic issues that play out in in, in classrooms and neighborhoods and some of the connection points that people were missing. So I think my transition to the mental health board really gave me an opportunity on the other side of the table, so to speak, to really understand some of the drivers and root causes of some of the issues that we were seeing in the classrooms and in the neighborhoods. So having been somebody who's actually been doing the work, now you're in more of a, I don't want to say supervisory role, but an uh, advocate role or a more uh, more access to resources, um, a better ability to actually convene stakeholders. Okay. Um, one thing that I'm learning or that I'm especially learning now in this role is we tend to look for leadership from people who are highly visible. 
And usually the folks who are most visible are furthest removed from the actual work that happens in community. And I'm trying to get to a place where we can connect those folks who have the authority to make decisions and who have the ability to allocate resources to the folks who actually work in community or who actually experience some of the issues that we're seeing. That, wait, that, wait, wait, wait. that is one of the most important statements right. I have heard in a long time. Me too. I was thinking that when she said that, I was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. You mean actually take the resources and pair them with the people that know how to use them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a concept. Well, isn't that a novel approach? That is a novel approach. No, I, I, I uh, <laughs> and, and your comment about the people who are the decision makers are farthest removed, and those who are leading are farthest removed from really what's going on. And there's that gap that needs to be bridged somehow and they brought be brought together right and i don't think it's like a nefarious plot to keep people separated it's just the way that systems are usually Mm -hmm. structured Mm -hmm. sure you know you work your way up you are in an industry or in a sector for a long time and after a period you get more authority and the more authority you have the further away you are from actually having to implement so I think it's a structural issue mm-hmm. that plagues every system. It's not just in the mental health sector. It's not just education. But any place that has uh, institutions and structures, you usually find the decision makers are, are much further away from where the actual um, issues are being addressed. Agreed. And, and, you know, and she doesn't even look like a rabble rouser, does she? <laughs> <laughs> but that is such an important statement you know, it's almost like, you know, wanna, let's call up whoever your boss is and, and let's say, give Serena a raise. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is being recorded. So uh, bosses there at the St. Louis MHB. That's right. That is incredible. And it, and it shouldn't be. That's the thing. It shouldn't be so mind-blowing that both Arnold and I were basically blown away by hearing you say that. And I've, I've seen that demonstrated in educational institutions mm-hmm. very frequently. Yeah, it, it's like I said, it's not industry specific. It's just the way things happen. Right. The more structure you have, the more governance you have. That's true. The, the greater distance you create. That's true. But right now, with everything happening with the crime, with the with the shootings, mental health is really at the forefront of everybody's you know plate. Because if you really stop and think about it, we all have a mental health issue. Every last one of us has some kind of issue. Right. right? Let me tell you about Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about me. Okay. Jessica, tell us about you. That's right. So um, I'm coordinator for the St. Louis Area Violence Prevention Commission. We're actually housed out of St. Louis MHB. And so I've been with the Violence Prevention Commission since October. Uh, Before that, I worked at Crime Victim Center. So I was doing direct service with victims of violence. For the last about 10 years, I worked directly with homicide victims' families in St. Louis City and St. Louis County. So after almost 14 years of doing that, I had the opportunity to get into more of a prevention role rather than being there to band-aid each situation as it came up. So I was really excited at the opportunity to not only work in prevention, but work in prevention that looks at upstream factors. So we're not just talking about that individual who's making a decision when they have the gun in their hand of whether or not they're going to shoot someone. We're talking about looking at the structures and the systems that are in place and really looking at 
at what are the educational risk factors and protective factors. What are the um, social service supports that are out there? What are, you know, the police are part of it, but they're not the whole answer to it. So really looking at the bigger picture of mental health and violence prevention. These people are actually talking like real people. I mean, these are both solutions, <laughs> you know, and it's like we, we talk about these kind of things. We think these kind of things, but to actually meet people who are in the position and that have the mindset to go forward with this is amazing. You know, prevention is key and it does start with education. In many cases, it's starting right at the home, right in the community, right in the neighborhood, you know, and it expands from there. Schools then become the issue. Schools happen. Schools label child goes through school with that label, you know, it, medication, all those kinds of things mm-hmm. are part of the mental mm-hmm. health picture. Yeah, and with the Violence Prevention Commission, we're lucky enough to have 60 member agencies from St. Louis City and St. Louis County that cover a wide variety of sectors. So we have workforce development, we have education, we have research, we have social services, we have criminal justice system, we have government. So we have a wide variety of sectors. And a lot of our agencies don't necessarily have a violence prevention program. But at the Violence Prevention Commission and at S- and at St. Louis MHB, we view education as violence prevention and creating workforce development as violence prevention and upkeep in neighborhoods and greening vacant lots is violence prevention. So really moving further upstream and looking across sectors that are already working but don't necessarily haven't always seen their place in the violence prevention conversation. Now, has St. Louis MHB always been structured like this or is this has this been a a recent change or you know and i talk about recent five to ten years something right like that. it's actually recent so um our new, our executive director jayma dotson uh joined mhb i think about eight years ago and when she came on board one of the first things that she did was to look at how the organization could position itself to do more collective impact. So collective impact is essentially getting people to work across sectors on complex issues. And she created the position that I have, the director of strategic initiatives, to start looking at regional solutions. uh, Because as a city taxing authority, we were really focused on investing in city strategies. But we understand that these issues are regional, and we have to have resources to look at how to bring in the county, municipalities. So this position, my position was actually created to start looking at how we work across sectors, across the region, on complex issues. Um, before that, we were primarily, MHP was primarily focused on investing in projects. So tell us a, a little bit about what you do then. Exactly how does, that, how does your role play out? And Jessica, how does your role play out on a day-to-day basis so people can get a feel for that? Because, Ellie, I, when I looked at their website, and as Jessica mentioned, the interagency relationships I was amazed at the amount of agencies that are connected, but this is something that we never hear on the news. We only hear like uh, St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, or we hear, you know, the mayor's office of the Board of Aldermen, or St. Louis County Police, or, or you, we hear very few discussions about all of these agencies and working together towards a common theme. So I'll let you. Well, you know, the one good thing about this, though, ladies, you all know this, won't have to know this, but now that you've been on. Radio 63119, it's, you're going to be amazed 
okay? You're, this is going to shoot you to the top of the catapult here, okay? Okay. Because when we cover issues, it does seem like now, I'm not bragging, but these other news organizations pick up on what we've been talking about. That is good to know. And, and, and I know you've been on other media outlets. But not like this one. But the, the, the beauty of this is we could talk about this topic for two hours straight. Mm-hmm. We don't do commercials. It's not like I've got six or seven minutes for you. I want you to unload and really unpack this for us, okay? Because right. we have people that are really tuned into this, okay? So what I'll say is we've, we've been intentionally under the radar. Um, we spent some time looking at the research, figuring out what the evidence says about how to approach violence prevention, building relationships. Because as you mentioned, we're used to working in silos. So I may be comfortable having a conversation with somebody who's in the same industry as me, but I may not be as forthcoming when I'm talking about somebody that is external or feels like an outsider. So it actually takes time to get people to the place where they're willing to be honest about what's working and not working in their system, when they're willing to talk to other folks about how they might want need to make improvement. Um, and all of that relationship building is necessary. One of the things that we see very often in our, in our region is we're very good at planning. And then when it comes to implementation, we don't have people who feel invested in actually implementing that plan. You're right. And that's because we skip the relationship building piece. You know, we go to these meetings and then when we leave, we go back to whatever it is that we were working on before we got there. Um, And we've been pretty deliberate in making sure that people understand that the Violence Prevention Commission belongs to the members. It's not the mental health board saying, here's the strategy, here's what we need you to do. It's us listening to the folks who are around the table, um, figuring out where their strengths are, getting people to really play in their strength area, and then shoring up those areas where we have weaknesses, identifying additional resources if needed, bringing in other partners. Um, So the whole process of building this level of collaboration takes time. And um, we haven't been out talking about who we are and what we do until we got to the place where we feel like we have something to talk about. Do you get pushback on turf protection you know like this is my turf or or now if 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 i share this information excuse me i may be out of a job or gee i'm going to give you all of my my good cards that i have to play and you know what am i going to play then not as much as you would expect and i think it's because we took the time to do the relationship building Um, but it does vary across sectors Mm -hmm. so there are some sectors where they they do have a little more um, protection around information but it doesn't mean that they're unwilling to collaborate or to figure out how to work with people and we approach it with um, what i like to call a coalition of the willing so we're not coercing people we're not forcing people there's no mandate if you show up in the room it's because you are looking for a new way to work and you're willing to engage with partners in a, in a new way. And I think that sets the table for us to be able to have some of the difficult conversations about what needs to change. And people understand that they're in a space with people who want to do things in a different way to achieve better results. And Sounds I think like church. <laughs> and <laughs> I think to Serena's be, yeah. point, looking at crime from a public health approach is a big shift that we're asking people to make. When we talk about crime and we talk about public safety and we talk about violence, most people think of the police, the courts, the prisons. Mm -hmm. And so those are more reactionary and they're more short term. A crime happens, we investigate it and we hopefully make an arrest. But what we're asking people to look at are the bigger social factors, the social determinants of health. How do we look from birth to adolescence to middle age to 
elderly, how do we look at violence prevention across that spectrum? So it's not going to be quick. It's not going to be flashy, but it's going to be really investing in the long-term solutions to violence in our region. I don't think any of our strategies are going to reduce crime tomorrow or reduce violence tomorrow. We're looking at a long-term sustainable change for the region. It's sort of like almost a generational kind of situation. You start, you know, it's like if you want to stop certain things, you start low, you start, you know, you don't try to get to the adults, you go to the children, and you start to educate the children so that they see that there's a different way to do things. Is that somewhat the way you all look at it? Because what you um, spoke about, really, there are different tactics at those different levels, you know, what Mm -hmm. happens here, mental health with a child, you know, is different than what happens at, you know, as a, as a teenager. And then as a, as a young adult, an older adult, a senior, you know, different things happen at different stages in, in life. But you're right. If you start low, young, you can make a difference as that, as that group grows. Right. And I, w- I would think that in addition to that is really thinking about the spectrum. So it's not just that we're going further upstream, but we also have interventions for, you know, if something has happened, how do we intervene when there's been a violent incident? Or if someone is reentering from prison into the community, how do we make sure that they're in a position where they can stabilize themselves? So when you think about the public health approach, it really goes from promotion to uh, universal prevention, to selective prevention, to treatment, to recovery. And in order to have a comprehensive approach, you have to do all of those things. And I think one of the things that sometimes happens is um, we focus on the, the, the issue that's most visible. So a homicide is right. the most visible part of the whole violence prevention effort. And we want to put all of our resources into homicides without thinking about what can we do to prevent those homicides from even happening. So the public health approach requires us to look at the full spectrum um, from across age ranges, across intervention points, because different things will address different situations. There are different drivers of violence. A part of the public health approach is diagno- diagnosing the problem. So really understanding why these incidences are occurring and what specific solutions we could apply to these um, to these situations. So there's not one program or one intervention that's going to solve violence. Uh, it has to be comprehensive. And this is why I asked Serena to come on today, and she uh, asked Jessica to come along to really speak more about this, because I was reading in, in some media outlets about the whole program that the city of St. Louis wants to undertake <coughs> as it relates to the gun violence. And that particular program is uh, the Cure Violence program. Mm-hmm. And it seems that it's being promoted as this is going to be a panacea for solving the gun violence problem. And as the Board of Aldermen, they voted, what, yesterday, $5 million approved, $5 more million to towards the program. It's, it's an international program. But Serena was saying, hey, look, it's just not the only thing. You have to have a comprehensive kind of approach to this, just like she mentioned. That's why they're here today. And the comprehensive approach becomes a more long-lasting one because, like you said, um, Jessica, you know, um, no, maybe Serena said it. You know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Maybe you said it, yes. And that was a very good point. Um, and, you know, sometimes, though, that can be the point that people use to go back and disfund, mm-hmm, defund. Mm-hmm. Well, we tried it for two years. It didn't work. We didn't see, you know, and it's like, excuse me? You know, it's it's like, you know, saying that you could take, you know, a, a, an amputation and it's supposed to grow back. 
Right. It, it, it doesn't. That's a good example. We actually did a, a study called the Crime Trends Report in partnership with the Institute for Public Health to look at what we have tried as a region over the past few decades. And we wanted to see had we achieved any success with anything. And they were able to put together a report that looked at all of the past interventions that were mostly federally funded and driven by law enforcement to see which ones worked, why they worked, and they come up with a set of recommendations on how we could replicate some of those successes. But to your point, funding is set up in such a way that it's cyclical. So whenever something looks like that they've, you know, they've addressed it or it's not quite as bad as it was when it started off, then the funding starts to peter out. Mm -hmm. And a part of our problem is that we don't have these long term investments. So even when you look at something like a cure violence program, it's an excellent intervention for when you are trying to disrupt a, a violent incident at that moment. And the, the talk right now is about putting it in the public health department. The irony there is that our public health department over the past seven years has gone from a staff of 350 to 87. So think about the disinvestment that happened in our own public health department and what might be different now had those resources remained in place. So because we don't stick with long-term solutions, we end up in these cycles of having to invest large sums of money in, uh, in, in strategies that are really crisis focused instead of having an ongoing prevention mm -hmm. approach. And what we're advocating is that we rethink that strategy. So we do have to address the crisis as it stands right now, but what we're hoping is that going forward, we have a long-term approach that looks at prevention so that we don't keep having these cycles of crisis. And to Serena's point, one of the things that the report on the crime trends focused on was that leadership is important, not just the high profile leader. So not just appointed or elected leaders, because we know the cycle of elections and appointments feeds into kind of the crisis cycle, because when we have a new person come into a position, oftentimes they may discontinue things that have worked in the past because they want to have their program. Right. They want to have their interventions. So in addition to the funding cycles, that come and go, you also have leadership that comes and goes. And I think that's one of the strongest features of the Violence Prevention Commission is that we're outside of those systems and therefore we have the ability to kind of be the institutional memory of violence prevention in our region. I, I love that, institutional memory. Yeah. Because institutions have a short memory. Mm -hmm. And I like what you're saying is so true. I often think of that when I think of the, um, the the first lady, actually, mm -hmm. the role of the first lady, mm -hmm. and the, you know, not the person, but the role of the first lady is each one of them tends to come along with their own initiative versus realizing that, you know, that initiative needed to maybe be sustained. You know, the last first lady started this. She did this for four years, for six years, whatever. It was starting to work. I'm going to continue her initiative. But they don't do that. It's like, I've got to have my own. And you're so right, Jessica. It's like it stops it right there in the tracks. The next person has to pick it up, start it up from the beginning, and there you are again, you know, looking at short-term result, you know, results. Mm -hmm. and, and again, funding is, is built on that in many cases, which is very, very sad. But man, I tell you, you two ladies, I don't think they're going to continue to do that with you two in power. <laughs> well, we're going we're to continue with them after the break. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to Intune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been talking to Serena Mohammed and Jessica Myers from the St. Louis 
MHB. Mental Health Board. And they go by MHB now, not Mental Health Board. So it's but if you but don't know MH- what MHB is, yeah, but MHB kind of sounds like MSD. Uh-huh. Oh, God, we don't want to do that. No, we don't okay. want to get the two of them mixed up. No, you could be, be calling the wrong phone number for. That'd be a real problem. That would be super problem. But let me tell you what I was thinking while we were off the air. You know, I'm of the age, and Arnold is too, where um, we could remember when there were mental health hospitals, mm-hmm. you know, in this area. And yes, there was a lot wrong with them. But then the next solution seemed to be to close them up mm-hmm. and then take and put people on the street. So I've gone from seeing them in the hospitals and actually having been a person that went with my father to do that kind of work in the hospitals to then people being on the street, Mm -hmm. which was like, oh my gosh. Then all of a sudden, every problem that was taken on by the media, whomever, became a mental health problem. Then I moved to California, where they started to ship the mental health people from all over the country to go live in San Francisco. And I started to see it on the streets there back in the 70s. Went there last week, the Bay Area is inundated with the homeless. It was just unbelievable that they're everywhere. Now I know that everybody has a mental health issue, but it is so in your face now that it was a little bit frightening. How does something like this mushroom, why isn't somebody containing this? Because you've got to clearly see at some point that there is a major issue. So one thing I'll say, the mental health sector as a field is relatively young when you compare it to like primary care. And when you talk about the beginnings of mental health, it really was about creating a custodial model because the belief was that you could not recover from a mental illness. So the solution was to just house people and take care of them for the rest of their lives. Um, It wasn't until much later, I would say around the 80s, that we had a consumer movement, which is really folks who have experienced mental illness and who have recovered from it, really advocating for solutions that looked at recovery. And the the industry as a whole hasn't made that shift, but there's research, there's information out there about focusing on recovery and not just treating mental illness as something that you're stuck with forever and and it it never improves. So I'm, I'm saying all that to say that we designed a system with one frame of mind or one way of thinking, and it doesn't match the actual reality of what it means to have a mental illness. So we are slowly making that shift into a a recovery-oriented system. The St. Louis MHB actually plans to host a summit next year to talk about recovery so that people can begin to put their energy into evidence-based programs that move people into a recovery model. But right now, we don't have enough providers and resources out there who understand the recovery approach. So what you're seeing is people who are not receiving the appropriate treatments, they're not really getting better in, in the way that they could, and, and that's how you end up with this, um, this growing population of people with unmet mental health needs. And, and I'll say that um, I, I like to make the distinction, you've said it a few times, that the connection between mental health and violence. I like to make the distinction that people with a mental illness are not more violent than people without. So whenever you get these reports that uh, if there was an incident, they, they must have had a mental illness, I think that's subterfuge. That's to get us to not focus on what the real issues are. Uh, what we can say, though, is that in communities that experience high rates of violence, they also experience high rates of trauma. Mm-hmm. And in those communities, they're dealing with the trauma, of the community trauma, the individual trauma that comes along with 
uh, feeling like you're always under siege or always under attack, from hearing gunshots a lot, from not feeling safe, from not feeling like you can go outside. You know, all of those things compound and they wear you down mentally and physically. So there is that component of it. But I want to be careful to not give the impression that mental illness itself makes people violent. And what you just said, again, goes back to that gap between the person who is at the top, who considers himself to be the leader, that person is so far removed from that other person's reality that they can't even begin to fathom what that person is going through and the trauma that is experienced. For them, trauma is like, oh my gosh, my latte came and was the wrong flavor. (laughs) (laughs) You know? To be fair, I would be upset if my latte was the wrong flavor, (laughs) but I wouldn't be traumatized by it. Exactly. You (laughs) see, that's the difference. But still, when that person at the top hears that this is the problem, Mm -hmm. like you just Mm -hmm. said, because we think of PTSD as somebody who's been in a war zone and, you know, not, but like you said not the daily I have I constantly hear gunfire in my neighborhood or I go out and the majority of the homes around me are burnt out so I don't know who's in that building or I hear things at night or or I'm growing up in an abusive uh, environment in my family yes where I, when I grow up I'm suffering the effects of all of that that's right that abuse. PTSD so you know you're talking like getting down really like on the basic on the floor yes And there's also, in addition to those types of trauma, there's also generational trauma. So there's information out there and research out there on, you know, trauma in pregnant women and how that can actually affect their child after they're born. Mm -hmm. I was at uh, a forum that was held at Washington University and they talked about stress um, on pregnant women. And one of the biggest stressors that they found was perception of being in poverty. So it's not even hearing gunshots, but it can be the day-to-day stress of living in poverty and trying to be safe and be healthy that can determine some of the outcomes for the child, you know, generationally. Now, let me ask this. You know, there are multiple groups out there kind of doing their own thing. You know, a lot of faith-based groups, a lot of um, 5013C nonprofit groups kind of doing their thing. Are you trying to, or have you reached out to them to say, hey, what are you doing? Uh, this is who we are. How are, you know, de- again, like you said, developing those relationships. Mm-hmm. Do you have like a book of all these groups together that are, you know, by zip code or by ward or something like that? Is that something that's being accumulated by the uh, St. Louis MHB? So MHB does have a list of organizations that we routinely work with in our grant making. We also have other foundation partners that we reach out to to, to uh, connect to their organizations that they provide grants to. The Violence Prevention Commission is an open group. So we have a quarterly meeting. Anybody is invited to come to that meeting. Uh, we try to do as much as we can to spread the word about who we are and what we're doing. Um, but to one of your earlier points, I think one of the challenges with collaborative work is that people have to understand what the value add is Mm -hmm. to working in a collaborative because it's not faster. It's certainly not faster. Mm -hmm. The more people you put in a room, the longer it takes to reach a decision. Um, So there are some things that come along with it that not everybody has the tolerance for. 
And what we try to do is to, to make space for people to work in the way that, that works best for them. So we have some folks who are very action oriented and they want to be in the community doing something right now. So we have a community engagement committee and they meet frequently and they're out doing uh, projects in the neighborhoods. Uh, we have other folks who like to do research and they want to study something and evaluate it and figure it out and they may take an issue apart for a year and there's a space for them. So we try to create spaces for people to plug in in a way that's natural for how they normally work because what I know from working in coalitions is if, if it's too rigid and if you have to give up too much of what you're comfortable with doing, um, it's harder to keep people engaged for the long term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we what? also have a great partnership with the United Way 211 that we have leveraged not only to get members for the Violence Prevention Commission, but also to reach out for some of our special projects to get information out there through the community, through the consumers, as Serena was talking about, but also to make sure we're making the connections between all the different agencies that are working on the ground that may be working in parallel tracks but if we connect them it will actually align the services better for everyone oh yeah that makes more sense are you getting any pushback all right and you know i I know there's cooperation going on and i want to speak to the the success of the cooperation and and kind of momentum building that goes on when you have those kinds of things but are you get also getting any pushback from any groups uh you know whether it be political or you know educational or social groups like that so i wouldn't call it pushback but i will say that there are some built-in obstacles to the work that we do And the reason that they're built in is because when you're looking at institutions and systems, they each have their own mandate for things that they are required or expected to do, things that they're going to be measured against. And sometimes it is difficult for an organization to back away from their mandate to take on a collective action plan. So, you know, to give you an example, Chief Hayden is going to be responsible for driving down violence. That's his job. That's why he's there. Um, he has to have a certain level of control over strategy because he's going to be accountable for how successful he is from year to year. So while the police department is a part of the Violence Prevention Commission, they still have to maintain their own strategy. And you mentioned earlier that sometimes when we hear the electeds uh, talk about their strategy, it's really focused on law enforcement. I think that's because people go to what they have power and influence over and what they can control. So if I'm the chief of police, my strategy is going to be around policing. What we hope, though, is that as they're building out their strategy, they understand that we're also a resource and we can do some of those things that they can't do as law enforcement. So when you have that continuum, when you have that comprehensive approach, it's fine for them to focus on what makes sense for them and then for us to bring along those other partners and resources to, to really round things out. So it's, it's not pushback as much as a structural barrier when you're working across systems. They're still responsible for whatever it is they were set up or designed to do. Our job is to communicate why working together actually amplifies their work or helps them achieve their goals. And I think to Serena's point about coalition work not being fast and not being easy, there are some people whose mandate is in the shorter term. They want to see results in one year. And so getting people on board for these strategies that may take longer 
is something that you have to be very careful when building those relationships because not everybody is working in the same time frame for violence prevention that VPC is. And, and you know, it's so interesting that Jessica said that because that was one of the points I was going to bring up. I was just thinking about something as simple that we've talked about on the show here, Arnold. And that's the trafficking and policing in smaller municipalities. Mm-hmm. Okay, they don't have enough money and, and revenue and tax in order to really support the system. So they use traffic stops as a way to earn money. And so then you think about someone who's already behind in their bills getting stopped for a, ta- a taillight being out, you know. And then all of a sudden they can't afford to miss work to go to court or pay the fine. So they continue to go, they get a warrant. Now, what kind of stress is that person living under every time they get on the road? You know, there's always the fear that they're going to get stopped again. There's going to be another ticket added on top of the, and they're probably going to get arrested. Now they're going to miss time. It's going to cost money. Wow. That in itself just creates a mental illness situation. And I mean, it's not an illness, but it's a reality. Well, and I I think you see that with like, sometimes people are going to for a job interview and they're leaving a child in the car because they don't have anybody else for babysitting service and yet you know you get tagged for that for for doing that and th- there are other ways but a, a lot of it is is communicating that information to people that there are other modes of support out there and then making sure that they know where those modes of support are. That's right, because a woman could go to a support system and say, look, in two days I have an appointment. I have no one to watch my kids. Mm -hmm. Where can I go? Right. Mm -hmm. But if she doesn't realize that there's an outlet, then she she figures there's no help. Then she says, I'm just going to be in there for 20 minutes. I'm just going to leave the kid in the car for 20 minutes. It's okay. It's going to be fine. And that, you know, we, because we've not been at that point in life. Right. We don't understand it. Right. We and condemn I also, it. I also think that there's also this, the assumption that there's an agency out there to meet every need. So Correct. we're, That's we're a, good point. a very service-rich community. Say, it's, not your, it's not your office? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but we're a really service-rich community. Community. We have a lot of great nonprofits that are out there doing great work. But part of what we've been doing with our service delivery committee in looking at the community response to non-fatal shootings is looking at what are those unmet needs. So when I was working directly with victims, there were certain things that when someone called me and said, I need help with relocation or my car windows got shot out. I don't feel safe leaving my car on the street with the window shot out. Is there somewhere that can help me repair that? I knew there wasn't somewhere that readily would meet that need. And so part of what we've done is not only to align the services, but to find out where those service gaps are. And then we can make the case as the Violence Prevention Commission as a convener of 120, 140 agencies, 60 of which are members, that this is a need that needs to be filled and how can we leverage our strength to help to fill that gap? You know, let me let me speak to one thing that, you know, we, t- we talk about some trauma and mental health issues. You know, both of you having dealt with some of the populations that you've dealt with, when you are engaged with them on a long period of time, you know, you dealt with murder victims. Like, holy smokes, the families are that. I, I can't comprehend what what that's going to be like over a long period of time and what you were dealing with. So I, you know, when you deal with people in those kinds of situations, it has an ability to impact you too. So mm-hmm. all of these groups that we're talking about that are this interrelated are dealing with their own 
issues also as, as a, a source of from a source of the the job is there something that's addressing that through those agencies themselves or is this another portion that has to peel off from uh, st louis mhb so i think uh, there's recognition of vicarious trauma. That's the what we would refer okay. to it as in um, victim services, vicarious trauma. And I think there's a recognition that it exists. So a few years ago, I did training for St. Louis City Police on what trauma looks like in victims of crime. And the department specifically asked me to include a section on vicarious trauma and burnout and suicide <laughs> prevention for police officers. Because we know that it's a difficult job that um, you're basically coming across people at the worst time in their life and that can't you can't get out of that without being affected by it so I think the awareness is out there I also think in the helping fields we don't always give ourselves permission to do what it is that makes us feel better when I when I would talk about trauma I would say everybody kind of knows what makes them feel better for me it would be being in a hammock in the backyard reading a book but when we're you know working with all these different agencies and we have things that are very pressing not to mention marriages and children and all those other factors as helpers and people even in the mental health field we don't always give ourselves permission to do that one thing that we know is going to help us feel better because we're taking care of everyone else before we think to take care of ourselves right so if Go ahead. I will say that um, the, the St. Louis Mental Health Board started looking at trauma-informed systems of care about 10 years ago, and we've had a focus on helping agencies become trauma-informed, and a part of that is taking care of your staff. It's recognizing compassion fatigue. It's providing training, breaks, uh, organizational culture, all of those things that support wellness. And we encourage organizations to really look into how to become trauma-informed. Uh, we worked with the state of of Missouri through the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education uh, to, to put together some recommendations for school districts on how to become trauma sensitive. So the information is out there. It is a commitment of time and resources that organizations have to decide to, to become trauma sensitive or trauma informed. Uh, but that's something that we really <coughs> expect our organizations to do because you can't be in this field taking care of other people if your organization isn't well itself. Right, right. So what are the goals for the next few years? This is kind of a twofold thing where we've got about uh, six minutes. What are the goals that you have in the area? And then secondly, what's the takeaway for people listening to this broadcast? What do you want them to walk away with uh, to be more informed as it relates to this? So we have a few objectives. One is really looking at that community response to non-fatal shootings. So non-fatal shootings are kind of a leverage point. We know violence works across a continuum from it can be start with a verbal fight, it escalates. And so the Department of Justice came in and did a report and they identified that non-fatal shooting as a potential leverage point. And so we've really looked at how do we intervene as Serena talked about in that kind of spectrum of prevention. How do we intervene before it becomes fatal violence? And so we're convening agencies around that to try and create a safety net for those um, individuals who have been victimized. But we're also looking at police community relationships. And um, often 
pretty much every police department will talk about their community policing, but not all of them have gone to the community and asked, what does the community want from community <laughs> policing? And so we're Isn't really- that a novel approach? Let's ask the community. Exactly. Yeah. Even we're, the community is part of policing. Yeah. Right. We're centering the community policing discussion and police community relations discussion on community voice and so we have a survey that people can take we've had events and we're going to take all that information back to our policy and systems change committee and look at how do we translate what the community wants into evidence-based community-informed suggestions for law enforcement you mean this is just not going to go sit in a file somewhere somehow I, i know but somehow i have great confidence that with these two women at the helm it's not going to just be at the next committee meeting. It's going to be nailed on somebody's door <laughs> until something happens. Sounds like Martin Luther. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully they don't meet the same end. <laughs> yeah. No. But, I mean, women like you, and, and I just say women because that's who has positions, but people like you who have these kind of positions, you're so low-key, you know, the, the kind of people that you are. We would never know that, that such strong people are right there in the helm doing exactly the same types of things or attempting to because we know that even you're going to have people that buttress up against you Mm -hmm. but trying to do what the community is already saying needs to be done well done ladies thank you thank you (laughs) well done you know it, it goes back arnold and i know that well you were the band director so you might not have seen the problem children but no you all put the problem children on the drums and things like that right <laughs> <laughs> so they can work out their aggressions but you know when you think about how far back this goes when you start to think about trauma and sometimes in the womb <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and how it, it generates itself through then the the baby the baby is set up against a traumatic situation maybe malnourished you know just neglected what it becomes like when it gets into school mm-hmm. then that's when the labeling begins once it gets into school and it goes through school with a label so now by the time it's a teenager guess what that child has already incorporated itself into a pattern of mental health really needing to be a part of the system how can you all identify though in these very last few minutes that person is all the way back there you know in utero that's going to need your help so, so there's actually a coalition that looks at um, maternal health, infant health, uh, peri- uh, prenatal, perinatal. Uh, there are groups that look at the, the specific science around detecting early psychosis. So the, the work is being done. I think um, the reason that I'm, I'm happy that you even asked this question or brought this up is sometimes we look at violence is just, you know, those are just bad people doing bad things. And we don't stop to look at the context that creates the the violent situations. And I think it's important that we begin to humanize everyone and to understand that something happens to each of us to make us who we are. And the more time we can spend figuring out what that something was and addressing those root causes and looking at the social determinants of health, the more successful we'll be in actually addressing violence. So, so all of your questions are great questions. I can definitely provide specific coalitions that are working on those issues 
um, and resources related to those issues. But I wanted to also make sure that uh, you asked the question before about how what our what our goals are going forward and how people can connect. If Jessica can talk about the the connection page, she spent a lot of time working on this on our website to make it more clear so that people can understand where they might be able to plug into the work. So our Get Involved tab on our website. So our website is stlareavpc.org. Okay, say that one more time. stlareavpc.org. Okay. And there's a Get Involved tab. And Serena talked about the spectrum of prevention. We have ways at each of those intersections to get involved in VPC. So if you just want to do promotion and you want to be an advocate and ambassador for VPC and you hear someone talking about violence prevention, you can say, hey, VPC should be at this table and that's your contribution towards violence prevention. All the way up to people who want to be involved with Big Brothers Big Sisters or Alive and Well, which are members of VPC and are really doing that selective prevention at those most high risk individuals for being victims of violence or being perpetrators of violence. So if you go to our website and go to the Get Involved tab, you can decide how involved you want to be. We know everybody's busy. So you can decide where you want to plug into that spectrum of prevention and really support the work of VPC. That sounds great. We will post those when we post this on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. We've been listening to Serena Muhammad and Jessica Myers from St. Louis Mental Health Board MHB <laughs> This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM Your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri